0: The thing that I find bracing in this series that we're doing in what is eco-socialism is, you know, sometimes I fucking hate talking to you. I know. (laughs) I get that a lot.
1: I'm Gil. Here with me today is Will, Lillian, and Owen. Hi guys. Yo. What's up everyone? Hey. So today we're kicking off a new series, one that's been long in coming. This is the first installment in a series that will try to answer the question, what is eco-socialism? I hardly need to convince listeners that our contemporary moment is one of intensifying and multiplying ecological crises, and that leftists need to take seriously the project of theoretically grasping the relationship between the capitalist mode of production and the natural environment. The most obvious problem, but by no means the only one, is of course the excess of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, leading to runaway catastrophic climate change, and whose proximate cause is the continual and increasing burning of fossil fuels for energy. This phenomenon cannot be understood without reference to the Industrial Revolution and the treadmill of capital accumulation, whose ever-expanding circuits of commodity production necessitates an ever-increasing consumption of cheap energy inputs. The other side of that coin is that any attempt at rectifying the circumstance without addressing the underlying logic of capital accumulation is doomed to fail, presenting at best a temporary bandage by means of technological quick fixes and, at worst, ultimately just a justification for continuing the catastrophic ecological status quo. This first episode is going to focus on some work by the environmental Marxist thinker John Bellamy Foster. So let me begin by trying to justify why we're starting here. Foster's writing on environmental issues from a left perspective really only begins in earnest in the 1990s. Now, socialist interest in ecological issues obviously goes back much farther than that. A comprehensive genealogy of this thematic would also have to include precursors like materialist ecofeminists Vandana Shiva, Maria Mies, and anarchist ecological thinker Murray Bookchin, for instance, and hopefully we can do episodes on them in due time. That said, it's more or less the case that the contemporary discourse about the coordination of Marxian anti-capitalist theory and environmental thought really begins with John Bellamy Foster and his collaborator Paul Burkett in the late 90s. This is for a few reasons. First, they spend a considerable amount of time dispelling a certain myth about Marx and Marxism more broadly, which is that it is Promethean. Marx's supposed Prometheanism means that he bought into the idea that nature is something that can simply be conquered and mastered, that there are no natural limits worth taking seriously because the progress of science and industry would always be able to overcome them. This idea that Marxism is a Promethean discourse was prevalent throughout a lot of 20th century environmental discussions. On the contrary, Foster and Burkett demonstrate that Marx already thought very seriously about natural limits, especially in his writings on soil productivity and nutrient cycles in the transition to industrial capitalism in the England in the 19th century. Uh, More on that in a little bit. The allegation is that Marx exemplified the very worst of what the Enlightenment had to offer in terms of the social relation to nature. Socialism would dominate and master nature, where capitalism failed to do so. So it's not the domination of nature that's bad, but the fact that capitalism just isn't all that good at it. But in fact, Marx saw that natural processes amount to conditions for the possibility of social reproduction that have to be respected, apart from any question of the degree of development of forces of production. Uh, Foster and Burkitt make this case very clearly, and the Prometheanism charge just doesn't stand anymore, in my opinion. Related to this is the charge that Marx's emphasis on the critique of political economy involves a generalized failure to understand the importance of nature or natural inputs in the production of value. Marx, that is, uh, is supposedly in the same boat as classical political economists like Thomas Malthus and even neoclassicists like Alfred Marshall in thinking that nature amounts to a, quote, free gift in the production process. But here again, uh, Foster and Burkitt show that Marx recognizes that natural inputs, far from being valueless, are an essential feature of social production whose value cannot be ignored. So that's the first kind of thing, right? They dispel these myth- myths about uh, Marx and Marxian analysis. But the second thing I think maybe more important is the uh, way that they try to think about the relationship between Marxian and ecological thought. So another feature of much 20th century efforts at bringing socialist and ecological thinking together is that it was often sort of post hoc and piecemeal. There have, of course, been plenty of socialist thinkers who agreed that environmental issues matter and environmentalists who also understood themselves to be socialists. But there wasn't always a consistent way of articulating the common ground of these positions. This led, in the 20th century, to a whole series of green-red syntheses that at best had shoddy theoretical foundations and at worst made coherent thinking about these problems impossible. There are a number of ways in which one might become invested in environmental issues. And some of them are fully incompatible with a clear-sighted analysis of present conditions. Environmentalists can be idealists, spiritualists, and even racist and fascist. Uh, We will get to eco-fascism later in the series. And conversely, socialists can be totally ignorant of environmental issues in theory and in practice. So we want a socialism that's environmentally conscious and an environmentalism that's materialist and anti-capitalist. And we want that unity to have a solid theoretical basis. This brings us to Foster's intervention. For Foster, the synthesis of economic and environmental thinking should be carried out through a careful analysis and development of Marx's concept of metabolic rift. In Capital, Marx talks about how labor is the process through which human beings mediate their relationship to nature. Nature here is neither historically static nor value neutral, but constitutes a material condition for the possibility of the reproduction of life, whose specific value and concrete utility is determined by human social relations. There's a kind of dialectical relationship between social and natural forms that unfolds historically. A crucial feature of natural systems is that they have a specific metabolism, a cyclical rhythm of material reproduction and replenishment. As I mentioned, Marx's own analysis to this effect concerns soil nutrients. In order to sustain agricultural production, it is necessary that a certain amount of nutrients such as nitrogen and potassium are returned to the soil at the end of or throughout the production process. If that metabolic cycle is disrupted, it will become increasingly impossible for the the soil to sustain crop yields, which will therefore tend to falter. This is precisely what happened in 19th century England. And the reason why is that the reproductive metabolic cycle of soil nutrients was interrupted by a one-directional process of extraction, thus constituting what Foster calls a metabolic rift. The accumulation dynamic subverts the cyclical dynamic of metabolic reproduction. When this happens, there are basically two possible ways of responding to the rift. One would be to reconfigure the production process so as to attend more carefully to the demands of the metabolic cycle, building into the very process of production some principles of ecological sustainability. The problem is that this almost always flies in the face of the actual aim of the capitalist form of production, whose fundamental imperative is increasing capital accumulation. So in capitalism, instead what tends to happen is that other production processes elsewhere are engendered whose goal is to meet those metabolic needs if it's profitable to do so. Sometimes they don't even fucking bother. (laughs) So as Marx saw, the depletion of soils in the imperial core kickstarted an ecological imperialist project where millions of tons of guano and nitrates were extracted and shipped from Peru and Chile to England, a project that also involved the relocation of some 90,000 Chinese workers to the global south to work in conditions that he characterized as being sometimes worse than slave labor. So a few things about this. First, it's clear that this, quote, solution to the soil depletion problem doesn't actually do anything to address the underlying issue at the level of the social logic. If it is true that, for a time, the soils in England were able to sustain intensifying agricultural commodity production by way of nitrate fertilization, it's also obvious that this could only be a temporary solve and that the metabolic rift was shifted to the global south. Indeed, it took only a few years for the guano on the islands in South America to be totally depleted since the extractivist project there replicated precisely the kind of one-directional non-reproductive logic that exhausted the English soil in the first place. Second, we can also see here how this sort of analysis is capable of connecting labor issues and ecological ones in a holistic way. The logic of industrial agriculture in the global north is tied intimately to the displacement of workers and exploitation of labor and natural resources in the global south. And it does so while being sensitive to the historical and social mediations of both labor and natural systems. So as Foster writes, quote, the power of Marx's ecology is that it provides a rigorous approach for studying the interchange between society and nature while taking into consideration the specific ecological conditions of an ecosystem and the larger web of nature, as well as the particular social interactions as shaped by the capitalist mode of production. Here, various environmental problems can be historically and ecologically embedded through an ecological materialist approach that employs a metabolic analysis, end quote. So I've gone on for too long, I know, uh, but I thought it was important here at the start of this new series to lay out the sort of coordinates of the discussion and to frame Foster's intervention. I think there are both virtues to Foster's approach, but also some drawbacks. I'm sure we'll get into that. Uh, But this notion of metabolic rift is central to how he thinks Marxists should understand the nexus between the logic of the capitalist mode of production and the crises of ecological reproduction that it continually engenders. On this analysis, capitalism is ecologically unsustainable in principle, and any genuine socialist project needs to take seriously the demands of metabolic natural reproduction as a condition for the possibility of just and equitable social reproduction. So that's my introduction. I'm really curious to hear how you all found this. Uh, we read a couple of essays by Foster and thinking about what you know he brings to the table, especially with this concept of metabolic rift.
0: Yeah, that was helpful. I th- I think it might be helpful to start off with what's entailed by the critique of Prometheanism. Because what I like about that is that that really is you know a kind of sticking point in a lot of Marxist scholarship. So I rarely do this. I'm about to critique my boy Ernst Bloch. <laughs> One thing that I Uh-oh. do think the critics, you know, they do have Bloch's number on is his theory of nature. Now, when we did our episode on Bloch, didn't talk much about his theory of nature, mostly because... You know I knew it would be a non-starter, but we might come kind of <laughs> around to it but Bloch in the principle of hope, he thinks you know Marx he is absolutely dead on the money you know that the the most important saint in the calendar is you know Saint Prometheus and why <laughs> is that? Well Bloch thinks what's entailed by Marxism the thing the reason why he thinks that you know utopia is something objective is he thinks that there's a movement of man towards nature and nature towards man such that there can be an ultimate reconciliation a unity between the human creature and nature such that the problem of subject object non-identity won't emerge and so you can see in block that he thinks at a certain point what he thinks is entailed by prometheanism is nature will be brought under the complete dominion of human mastery and control now I, I I was wondering if we could start with this because I wonder if there's another way we could think about the Promethean spirit of, of Marx that I do think is probably still there, which is, you know, the capacity for us to change our conditions and have some type of rational planning and foresight over it. So I'm wondering, is it a rejection of Prometheanism as such, the idea that you know the mm-hmm. human creature at some point can have complete control over its environment, or is it a more bounded Prometheanism, the idea that this is the first time in history where we'll be able to consciously direct our relationship with, say, the rhythms of nature in a, a freeing and harmonious and justifying way, but that doesn't entail that nature just becomes like you know, a puppet, whose strings we can pull mm-hmm. at will. So I don't know if that question makes sense, but I, yeah, you know, I'm wondering if you, know, for our listeners, we can say a bit more about what the stakes are with the Prometheanism and whether people are completely wrong to find an element of Prometheanism in um, Marx and Marxism.
1: Yeah, I think that's a question that makes sense. Uh, I think that I think that there's like a, a a version to your point of like a recuperation of the Promethean spirit that is. Reconcilable, let's say, with like this sort of ecological critique, but it just doesn't look like it just doesn't look like just like making nature do whatever the fuck we Mm want, right? And there's a sort of funny, like, the way you put it was like, what if there's like a bounded Prometheanism? Of course, that's sort of a funny image because the
0: whole point (laughs) that's where he ends up, isn't it? (laughs) 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 I wasn't thinking about that, but yeah. Yeah, it's it's always a bound to Prometheus, I guess. Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah. Like I I think you're right. There's a uh, a a desire for conscious, rational organization of social production that is attuned to, sensitive to ecological needs and limits. It isn't just that does make use of technology and science, right? Like the anti-Prometheanism critique isn't to say that, uh, you know, no, say no to science, say no to industry. But that, like, you know, it, it's a question as always of, like, what the forms of the mobilization of technologies, what constrains that mobilization? And under current conditions, it's it just ultimately is capital accumulation at the end of the day. And that, according to Foster, just is going to give rise to just more and more ecological rifts.
2: Yeah, yeah. I don't know whether, like, I don't know what to think about the degree to which Marx or Marxism is inherently Promethean, but I do think they're right that going forward, Marxism has to be non-Promethean. It has to understand itself. It's actually helpful, be, like to, in the sense that we, we often, I think, just have intuitions that capitalism is incompatible with like taking ecological crises seriously, and those are intuitions are like correct. But I think even even this, this is the case for me. Like when you really press me on it, I don't know how how conceptual. How conceptually I can frame it, and how well argued, like my position on that would be, and so I think this is like really helpful for showing that well, capitalism is incompatible, right, with its emphasis on accumulation and on exchange value, is totally incompatible with any kind of sensitivity to or responsive to the metabolic cycles that make life possible for hum- for possible, yeah, right. that make life possible, <laughs> and so like I just think that on at that level, it's a really helpful intervention. Mm-hmm. Part
0: of the 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 core of the, the the co-authored article, Foster and Clark, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. I remember last time we had the co-authored article, I butchered the other guy, so I guess Clark's uh, <laughs> Clark's good in my book. Um, you got to give
2: Clark his due.
0: Right? I got to give Clark his due. That I love the this image. Well, obviously I don't love it because we have to live it. That you know, capital actually tends to you know reorganize you know the the sort of the temporal bases of. All mm-hmm. other life on the planet. So the idea that for soil to become re-enriched with the nutrients that it needs, you need an understanding of, of temporal organization that isn't simply linear and limitless. The mm-hmm. problem is that at a very abstract level, you know, at least you know when it comes to accumulation. Capital is, you know, driven by this en- endless linear need to break any limit it encounters. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it seems like the one way of understanding the incompatibility is, you know, how we understand the the organization of these activities and seeing that capital tends to organize and determine and frame activities according to this logic of endlessly surpassing limits, where it seems... For, for nature, is always you know, a delicate balance of playing within its own limits, of not mm-hmm. constantly pushing itself beyond what it can actually
2: recuperate. i just been thinking about, uh, we were at a talk by a friend of the show, Al- Ali Femi Taiwo, um, recently. And I keep thinking about what he was describing with, like, the water, like, groundwater extraction processes in Arizona and in Nevada, like in the southwest, and the, like insatiable need for water not for it's not mostly for human consumption it's for agricultural production right it's right it's to accumulate capital because most like you know it's not even a, about you might say oh well that's important for meeting human needs i mean most food ends up in the garbage right most most food from these agricultural processes just rots in a landfill so it's not it isn't uh it isn't about that but that we've like we're it's the the, the production process is so unresponsive to like the metabolic cycles of nature that they we have actually shifted the earth's axis. Like we're significantly shifting the earth's axis from extracting all this groundwater and the planet is literally fucking wobbling like, on, <laughs> on, on its axis. I mean, that is, if you, it's just, for me, that's just an image of what, of how unresponsive you could possibly be to like, to these metabolic hey,
0: cycles. Hey, you know. hey. You gotta give it up the capital though. It is literally a world shaking force. I it mean, is mean incredible. You know, feudalism <laughs> could never. Yeah. So. I was just, I was just teaching never, the Communist
2: bro. Manifesto and was reminded about how hard he goes for a little for a few pages there, but like you gotta we gotta recognize how incredible what this new class has done, like the bourgeoisie. They have totally <laughs> reshaped. They just made they just make new rivers when they need things to be like to trade better. Like they'll just make a new river. And it'll cut through a continent and, you know, like <laughs> blow up the top of a mountain. Yeah. Yeah. they just like, well, we'll just get some engineers and
1: throw them at the Chicago River until it flows the other way. Yeah. Like, cool. And sends, and, and, and sends all of our
2: shit down to St. Louis. Bless those, yeah. bless those people. St. Louis is fucking problem. Yeah. Now. Okay, <laughs> I have a
3: question. Um, sorry, audi- I'm really sick, everybody. Hi. Um, so I'm going to have to uh, apologize to Gil for having to like cut out all my sniffles. Is physically and morally. Yeah, I'm ill in more multiple ways. Um I'd like to know what the relationship is between this idea of the metabolic rift and like what's wrong with it and the concept of alienation because I feel like there's a kind of mirroring that's happening here. So I went to um a talk about alienation recently. By A good friend of mine And he had this It was like a teaching, And he had this PowerPoint that was like It was all in German And he was like listen look In the beginning like before In pre-capitalist societies you had like The snail was like attached To its shell And then like he has this like Line of like, re- like images That you follow and then in modern society Like the snail and the shell Like come apart Like this snail is like not in its house. It's called a schnicken house. It's really
2: cute. <laughs> <Schnicken> okay, so, <laughs> house God, what a what a language. I love yeah, it. Yeah, it's like
3: super literal. It's adorable. He's like schnicka, and House. And you know, and then there's um okay, so but the thing is is like there's this I'm trying to draw this image for listeners of like kind of like what's happening with alienation. You get torn from the means of production. You don't have control over your you know your metaphorical house or or home uh your dwelling um, and the and the conditions that kind of that create your uh, your home are, in in importantly out of your your control. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the idea of metabolic rift kind of mirrors, like this kind of orthodox account of alienation. And I and my only question about I I think there's something true about it, but I think importantly what makes it different like what makes it something different from the critique of alienation is that like i'm not sure it's actually specific to capitalism in the way that like so alienation seems to emerge it's a both a product of like um industrial development but importantly that kind of like um mo- that economic moment you know when the snail and the 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 shell come a- come apart and you become dependent on wage labor and so on I don't know exactly if the metabolic rift works like that because it seems to me like it would be an attribute of almost any large scale economy, like any advanced division of labor, any, even a planned economy might have those features unless you, unless one really wants us all to like go back and work the, the land in the way that like peasants did but even peasants were not particularly efficient. They destroyed plots of land all the time. Slavery was not efficient, you know, and I'm somebody who felt like there are varieties of slavery and not all of them are compatible with capitalism. And but in, in either case, and some are, but in either case, there is something meaningfully different about what's going on there than there is with wage labor. So and that's that that destroys the land, too. And and so like there's there's a way in which I'm just not that I don't know if my I'm sorry, my brain is foggy, but like I'm just trying to ask like how specific to capitalism is the metabolic rift? And like what is the nature of the criticism? Is it like alienation because it's trying to say there is something distinct to capitalism that would mirror that and like kind of introduces like a normative argument as well? Sorry, I'm sprawling.
1: No, I think that's a great question. Yeah. So there's like two things I want to say here, and this gets at I think part of the prob- like the limits to Foster's uh, approach here. So I want to I want to I want to say both the the, vir- the virtue and the drawback that I see here. The virtue is that I think he's right that capitalism cannot help but produce metabolic rifts in the sort of way he describes. And it doesn't have any real means or any interest even really in addressing that problem other than in these short-term fixes, like, you know, just displace the rift elsewhere. Uh, and then we have a pretty nice account of how this development of agrico- or industrial production leads to core periphery problems, uneven exchange and so forth. All that's really helpful. Is it specific to capitalism, though? This is your question, and I think that's a great one because... Sometimes I worry that if we did, it, sometimes this theory makes it sound like if we just forced capitalism to like play in the sandbox and not go outside the limits, then like the, the ecological problem solved, right? Like we could have a meta, could we like force capitalism to be metabolically sensitive? And is that what remains there, right? Like, is it, is it good enough? If we say, hey, OK, I know you want to make as many commodities as possible, but there's, you can only use so much lumber because you got to be time sensitive, like you were saying. Well, you got to recognize that it takes forests a certain amount of time to replenish. So
2: OK, you can't make more tables mm-hmm. than that. Or with the example of like the guano, it takes like geological time scales for th- some of these things right. to replenish.
1: Yeah, no. And in that case, like, yeah, in the mid 19th century, like the thousands of years of guano deposits were like used up in like something like 12, 15 years. Right. So but like if we didn't do that, are, are we good then? That doesn't seem adequate. Right. It seems like we'd want to say that there's still a problem with capitalism that maybe doesn't that doesn't get captured by this metabolic rift logic. Is that is that sort mm-hmm. of responding to your question?
3: Yeah. Like more what's like, why does it escalate things so much in like what's qualitatively different about this metabolic rift i guess cuz when i'm saying like is it unique yeah. to capitalism i'm not saying it's not bad but i'm just saying like other systems are can also
2: i mean the soviet system had some pretty big metabolic this
3: isn't the yeah. only metabolic rift humans created and like there's a there's a way in, yeah you're right in which it could just be made like too simple where you're like capitalism does this but it's totally. like, yeah, slave societies did this, too. They just had a lot less few, yep. lot less people and a lot less like, you know, there's mm-hmm. a producing things at a lower scale, you know, for a smaller population yep. and a more geographically enclosed population or whatever. Um, and peasants, too, like they would like they, they would have to like leave areas of land fallow. And there was kind of like a way of like working this out. But the truth was, is that like it's not like this was the most
1: because they were ecologically mm -hmm. like minded,
3: right? Like you, like, like, (laughs) like what was happening, Mm -hmm. wasn't like a wise use of the land. It was just like pragmatically. And so like at scale that could have also been worse. It was just again, less accelerated and, you know, didn't have the same growth dynamics or whatever, but like, like there's a reason why, you know, like Malthusian, like demographic, crises would happen is because actually you could overwork the land and then you would like ruin enough of it. And then you'd have too many people and then so on and so on. So it's just a question about like, yeah, there is a problem here, but like kind of what's the more specific problem, I guess. And I think you did answer that.
2: As part of the answer also that like there's that capitalism so radically detaches the use value of nature and like natural resources from its exchange value. And so. That's something unique to it, that it, the motor of all that extraction and exploitation isn't as it was in other, I don't know exactly, as as it was in other economic systems, potentially, it isn't as indexed to people needing to eat. It's in, like I said, most of that food goes in the garbage, right? And so... That, that maybe that element I mean, of like the waste surplus. waste is
3: extreme. That's true.
0: Yeah, yeah. and so yeah, we're often told that capitalism is the most efficient system, but also somehow it's the most wasteful. I tend to think it's actually not a paradox. I think. It's probably no. the, the waste part. So I, I actually I really like this question. I'm one I, I can think of two ways or two paths from what you all have said that we might think of the critique of, you know, capitalism's relationship to, to ecology. So the first type of critique could go something like this. Well, what's specific about it is there's never been an economic system that had the capacity to radically reshape nature in this way, and so in that way, it would simply be like a technical argument that you know mm-hmm. we can uh, admit that feudalists and slave societies also mistreated nature, if you want to use that sort of normative language, or you know didn't treat nature well, but it simply didn't actually have the technological forces of production to do what we now are able to do. I mean, this is also where some of the worries were when the first the invention of the atom bomb, where people realized, oh wait, so we actually have the power to destroy ourselves as a species at this point? And so that could be one, but I think that would be a rather surface level critique. Another way and I, I haven't read too much on it, but you know some indigenous philosophy would argue something like this that capitalism at a deeper level radically remakes the types of social relationships we could envision having with nature, where nature becomes you know an object to uh, use to generate value rather than um, a, a place of wealth, a place of sociality etc and so what might be specific to, to capitalism is you know the increasing inability to see nature as anything but something to extract from or to conserve insofar as you want to preserve further extraction. And so what the deeper part of that will connect, I think, closer to a type of alienation critique where it's not just about pointing out the mere fact that capitalism destroys nature, but also point out the types of social relationships it creates between us and what is not us and nature and so I I, I I take it from this conversation that if we want something that's not just like it's bad to do things to nature because human survival is cool and all of that, but to say it's specific to capitalism, I think it shows that there are limits to simply thinking you can just point out the window and say bad things are happening to nature and that's sufficient for the Marxist critique. You'd Mm -hmm. either have to actually say, well, something about the technical forces and what it can do are radically distinct from prior uh, economic systems. Or you might want to say something like, because you know, um, the, the Foster Clark article talks about, I, I forget the name of this paradox of the possibility that you know, public wealth can decrease as private riches increase, the divorce of wealth and value that seems to be imminent to capitalism also has you know, real serious consequences for how we could even think about how we synchronize ourselves uh, to nature. All of that is to say, I think Gil's point is right, it cannot just be if we can just tame capitalism a little more, that's sufficient for the critique. Because then you just get people being like, yeah, we just need better tax policy. You know, wag our federal <laughs> regu- at people who pollute. Yeah. That's just a regulatory problem. But we want to say, I I imagine the eco socialist critique is no, 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 it's not a regulatory problem. It has something to do with the imminent dynamics of capitalism.
1: Yeah, I think like it's, you know, we can imagine other, and and we don't even need to imagine, we have historical empirical examples of non capitalist forms of society creating things like that sort of metabolic rifts that they're describing. I think that the claim is that that's not an inevitable outcome of organizing society on those economic bases and it is an inevitable one in capitalism Hmm. Mm -hmm. because the core driving dynamic is capital accumulation right like that it it cannot but run run afoul of these limits in every case because of the nature of commodity production for capital accumulation i don't know i i still think that that's That maybe still leaves some of the worry here intact. I'm not entirely sure what we'd want to say. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's not a problem. I'm not sure.
0: Well, I actually think, you know, and this is me doing a bit of devil's advocate. It actually stops being a problem if you kind of accept the Promethean argument, and say, well, if what you're worried about is you find in other prior societies that there are metabolic rifts, then isn't the great thing that Marxism can promise is, we would be able to radically autonomously and subconsciously create societies in which metabolic rifts would uh, no longer be a problem or would be significantly minimized. And so mm-hmm. I'm wondering you know, how we might respond to the idea of someone saying, yes, you're right, prior societies, precisely because they didn't have you know, the mm-hmm. capacity for their Prometheanism, did create metabolic rifts, but the transition from capitalism to communism would allow us to order our affairs, not just among humans, but with nature in a way that no other society has ever seen before. And so maybe they would say... That 's why you can 't lose a Prometheanism. you need an idea of mastering mm. nature now i 'm not you know yeah. I, if, if you're just listening in, you might think that that 's will arguing for that position. it is not. I am just you know, saying that we could one could respond that way
2: yeah, I think that's right actually, because you know even in there what they call the elementary triangle of ecology that they pull out of they pull out of Marx, they this concept of the elementary triangle of ecology. And the first one is social use, not ownership of nature. But the second one is rational regulation by the associated producers of the metabolism between human beings and nature. Like, so there, I I almost feel like the the Prometheanism kind of creeps in a little bit there and is like, yeah, (laughs) actually, maybe that's part of the solution. It's like, we actually need to more rationally control our relationship to nature and more rationally control, to the extent we can, nature. And that's... Not like put aside all of your spiritualisms about mother nature and her autonomy and all this stuff. Uh And just think about what would be the most effective way to rectify this situation. And even they put, I, I think a pretty strong, like they, they, they place pretty centrally the rational regulation of nature. Yeah. So,
3: I mean, I think that like one thing to try to think about is that what we're talking about like obliquely is the difference between extensive and intensive growth. What makes capitalism the reason I kind of brought this up is like what what makes capitalism different from what came before or from other production relations is that growth is intensive. Okay, it intensifies mm-hmm. the labor product, you know, process specifically by increasing labor productivity and it doesn't have to do that by relying on too many external mechanisms. And other social systems are extensive. So like the easiest way to conceptualize this would be like before the American Civil War, like what was going on? The way that slavery grows, because there are limits to how much it can exploit the land and increase labor productivity of, of slaves. Okay, you can't get slaves to work harder than they they are. There's no mat- there's no motivation to do that for them. So you used to, ha- you have to use brute force to do it. And there's very little incentive to like innovate. So like we talk about like the invention of the cotton gin, like it was like this big revo- revolution, but that's over hundreds of years. Like, yes, it did improve somewhat, but like it's very slow. So when you're exploiting the land like that, you have to like, if, if, if you run out, if you exploit the land too much, which is what happened, in plantation like in the plantation system then you have to expand outward okay and so the 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 expansion outward of the slave system was what the Civil War was about and it couldn't survive if it couldn't do that
2: mm-hmm. and I think
3: likewise you know the, that's what the the peasant economy is about like you have to once you once you like exploit one plot of land you got to move to the next one and let that one go follow and maybe there go follow and like maybe there's some more equilibrium there but that's how you get the demographic crises issue and so on. And then, like, like, the Soviet system was also extensive growth. So, like, mm-hmm. you basically have to increase the surplus by, like, bringing in new workers and, like, burnishing them with, like, more machines, which is different than, like, intensively, which, like, means that you transform the rapidity or the intensity with which each worker works. So capitalism does is the one that does it intensively. And the only reason I'm like going on a lecture about this is because I think when people talk about like what's specifically wrong with capitalism, it has to be its specific pattern of intensive growth. Mm -hmm. But then when you start asking what the alternative is, I think something that frustrates me that I have seen in discourses about eco-socialism is it's not obvious that extensive growth, that other growth patterns like extensive growth and its different qualitative axes is – gonna resolve this problem. In fact, it could be worse or whatever. And so the argument behind the so-called Prometheanism is the idea that intensive growth can be qualitatively different than it currently is. Because the alternative to that, that that was tried in the the Soviet system, that was tried peasant slaves, like all the other known modes of production operated with extensive growth. And capitalism is the one that doesn't. So if we want to break with capitalism and you want to, if like I, some of the argument is you want extensive growth, you know, you got to figure out like how to work that out. I don't know. But it's not like that. That There's a big dilemma there. And the socialist argument has historically been that like the intensive direction can indeed become under the control and we can and there is something worthwhile about developing the productive forces in such a way that we don't have to grow intensively and so on.
0: So something I wonder about these discussions, you know, is this notion of eco-socialism and all of that. And again, I I, want to do the thing where I just want to hear what what you all think. I don't know if this will get me cast out or anything, (laughs) but isn't there something... Maybe we're too quick to assume that this notion of ecology and socialism just, you know, fit together, because it seems like, you know, a lot of the the normative argument, the forward looking argument of eco-socialism is not just about the break with capitalism, but it is underpinned by, you know, a type of normative vision of what we would want from a social system. And so it seems like, you know, a lot of our questions, even about, you know, having a more um, durable and flourishing relationship to nature is often underpinned by this idea of, well, how can we still get what it is we need from nature in order to use it for our own human development? Now, I'm not about to do the whole anti-anthropomorphic thing or anything like that, (laughs) but I do want to say something like, It still seems like this is a sort of a narrow vision of thinking, well, what emancipation is, it would still have to have nature be subservient to humanity. And so I think that's actually... The Prometheanism that cannot be erased from a type of Marxism, there is, I don't think there's any Marxism that thinks that, you know, we should return to nature being a blind force that, you know, frames and controls our activities. But, you know, someone like, you know, um, I'll just bring him up, random, but I don't want to name drop. Adorno worried about this idea of only thinking about freedom through the idea that we're only free insofar as we dominate nature. And clearly his kind of worry about that was, the problem is the human being is also part of nature, so that domination of nature actually never just stays with you know mm-hmm, plants right. and animals and all of that. Mm-hmm. But I at least want to put on the table, and again, I know this might get me cast out, but you can't just assume – that the better form of life is how how we can better exploit nature to, for our happiness and all of that. Because I think the implicit question is, we also have an idea of the standards of living we'd like to keep up in a transformed society. No one here, well, very few people would argue, we need to go back to barbarism and all of that. I know there, there are like scary people who are like, we need to go back to hunter-gatherer societies. So, I, you know, I'm not formulating very well, but I'm like, there <laughs> yeah, I mean, is an I implicit yeah. norm to vision going on here. And it sometimes seems like the eco part is an appendage to the implicit normative vision of, I have an idea of what human life should be like. So how can I keep that up? But also have, you know, the good of, you know, nature being stable enough to support that type of life. And I at least think we should argue for that. I get it. We're talking to other human beings and human beings. We love ourselves. (laughs)
2: Like, you
0: know, I'm not trying to live a bad life, but, People might wonder from, you know, when they come from different angles, being like, well, the eco is still in a position of subservience and, object, and objectiveness mm-hmm. to the subject of human consumption and stability.
2: I think, you're, I think you're right that that's not a problem. Just want to say really quick that, that, can, that Marxism can solve or address, right? The status of like, what, what, whether or to what extent humans should have a pr- and see themselves as having a privileged place. In the, the ecological systems that we're dependent on, I just want to mark that. I have more to say about that, but well, go, go I, ahead.
1: I think like one point to make here is that you know, as is usual, this maybe maybe this will help kind of answer to Lillian's worries. Let's follow Marx's footsteps. He wants to talk about production and social production and social reproduction. First, kind of in general and what its conditions mm-hmm. are, and then specify what's specific to those conditions of production and reproduction in a capitalist society or where the capitalist mode of production predominates. So like there's not any version, there's not any version of a human society existing that's not going to be in this kind of metabolic interaction with nature. Right. We there's no <laughs> there's no socialism where we ain't gotta eat. And like you know, t- take shit from the fucking ground, but and will turn we it be eating
2: bananas? Is the key question. But will we
1: be eating bananas? That's is the, the main key. thing. Well, wow, that's a throwback to that's the, the a, discourse. That's the key question. <laughs> wow, wow. For those of you who don't know, this, this was a big <laughs> nice.
2: controversy for a while. Will there be bananas under like accessible to people in the global north under socialism? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I come out on the side of like, I don't know, it'd be nice, but not if it means more slavery in Latin America. So, you know, I mean, oftentimes I, no, I do
3: actually just want to like say this, that, I mean, I don't know. I don't really remember that discourse that well. Cause I didn't follow it, but like, D- DDR. Oh, People
2: were putting banana emojis in their names. In but their like the DDR <laughs>
3: did not have bananas or mangoes or any of those things. And like they would get a shipment like maybe once a year and they would run to the grocery store and everyone would get like one banana per family. So I think what kind of like troubles me about like being flippant about it, not that like there wouldn't be less of some of like the, the fruits and so on. Like there's certainly less waste and like we would probably get like I probably wouldn't you know I don't need to buy buy bananas every time I go to the grocery store but like it actually is worth one worrying about because like actual socialist societies have existed and they didn't supply all these things they weren't able to and you know that's a problem like it's just like a problem that's like worth Mm. taking taking up you know, I went to a DDR museum this summer and this woman told me about how she used to run on banana day to make sure that they didn't get, because if you didn't go, weren't first in line, you wouldn't get one. And waiting in lines like that and so on, it's just like, when you try to picture like what kind of balance you want, you know, you could, it's okay to be like, yeah, maybe you would get less of this, but running to the lines once a year, people might not find that attractive. So like, Let's like talk about it, like without being condescending about like people who might want bananas, because that wasn't like a fake problem. That was like a real problem. Well, no, that it's they not had. a fake
1: problem. It's not a fake problem. But I think that the thing to emphasize in this specific example, right, is like, okay, that scarcity of the banana and the line that I have to wait in, like that kind of sucks. And I want, ban- I like a banana. I enjoy a banana. But the current situation is one in which like the United States government props up paramilitary regimes to like have so that we can have like bananas at every gas station all the time, no matter what the season, and we throw them out like 90% of the time. And that's actually not something that's worth defending either, right? Like, you know, there does, like I said, like you said, there's gotta be some sort of balance here. And I don't know, I'm sort of thinking back to the participatory economic stuff that we were talking about a few episodes back. But like in in a democratically run global economy, would that sort of production process continue if we were taking seriously the demands of the workers in these places? I don't think so. And if the version of saying saying no to a more ecologically and, and labor justice, like uh, equitable global society and division of labor is because we want to continue to have the consumer needs or consumer demands of global North white middle class workers always satisfied like i don't know i'm off i'm off that train
2: i mean i also think just uh, i don't know if this is too simple of a way of p- putting it but it's not even it's for me it's just like a question of like limits like is it possible to keep doing what you just described kill like is it it's not a question about what desirability it's that if i have to if we have to choose between to put it in the most extreme sense planetary survival and like persistent like neo plantation like exploitation in the global south or the exact same access to bananas, um, I think I'll, I'd, I'd probably choose like Planetary Survival and <laughs> like Justice for Workers in the Global South over over maintaining that level of access. Yeah, I just want to jump in here because sometimes I also think there's a deeper
0: thing going on in these types of debates. That you know what I'm I'm just gonna say. It. Yeah, Twitter isn't actually the gr- the best way to have this out. It is quite clear <laughs> yeah. that, you know, people get captured by the people <laughs> who annoy them, and then they just dig in their heels. Oh, my God. No, That's I sometimes so get upset guilty. about it because, so you know, this. I'm like, actually, there there are some serious disagreements here. No one's being clear in their terms, and l- let me be clear. So, there's a tradition in Marxism, people love the no cook shops for the future, and all of that. They use that to wag their fingers at anyone who's a considered a utopian, show how much of a realist they are. But then the all of a sudden it turns out we do want to talk about some things about what life would look like in the future. So it seems to me quite clear. We don't want to simply say, yeah, Yeah. the future will work it out. It's up to them. (laughs) We can't do it because that doesn't make sense. But here's another layer that I think where it often gets confused. And I get heated about because I'm like, at least let's be clear about the language game we're doing. One angle of that argument what, you know, was often executed as, it would not be popular to talk openly about something like that. So we're talking about tactics or strategies. About less but then to it, is, yeah. it, it slips to being about social theory and all of that. And the reason why I get this is because sometimes I find that the tracks slip and no one told mm-hmm. me whether we are talking about how you are going to employ tactics, do political organizing, or are we talking about social theory? No, we're doing and speculative so, social
2: psychology at a certain about what people are going to think and feel about this other this other. Yeah, and then so I
0: can I can start to invent all sorts of things. And I think Lillian is right. No one no no one wants to either tactically talk about, but also I don't think it's objectively desirable the idea of waiting in lines and all of that. But right. what yeah. I what I'm always frustrated with the debate is it's as if we're saying to the transition from capitalism, there would be radical changes, but then it's like we don't actually agree on what those radical changes would be. Some people hold constant the idea of, you know, a certain, you know, um, level mm-hmm. of life, a certain access to certain goods. Others will say, well, no, what is held, you know, um, constant is, you know, a norm of freedom and we'll be, will become different people. And I just find these conversations so frustrating mm-hmm. because it seems like we don't even all agree on what would change about us and our lives and our desires, and we're just assuming that we all have the right answer and we're just talking past each other. And we're
2: projecting too much of who we are now into what this future situation But we don't even
0: agree, be. like, on who we are now. That's, <laughs> That's what I mean. So I don't know what is what is the thing that I'm absolutely committed to that we have to make sure doesn't fall below the threshold in the new society. And yeah. so obviously, I'm all about, we don't want to go back. You know, we don't want to, like, you know, return to being dependent on arbitrary forces and all of that. But it sometimes sounds like we're saying everything be radically different, but also everything would stay the same and be good and even better. And that's what, <laughs> what allows like conservatives to say, yeah, you all are living so in the fantasy it. land. Yeah. You, you don't think that there are any costs. Yeah. And yeah. maybe we do have a secret sauce and all of that. But I just find that these conversations get really confused, especially in Twitter. And I'm like tactics and social theory aren't necessarily the same mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. all that type of stuff. So sorry to get a little bit passionate about, no, well I think good. about it's these totally. things and I'm like, I could, any opinion I read, I could actually reconstruct the argument and be like, yeah, that's plausible. I get that. Yeah. And I actually have no principle of deciding between them.
2: I think that's really well put. I do think like one, there is one valid point to be made that I kind of struggled with a little bit because I've maybe used some of this language before is that maybe it's not. And again, this, you're right. It's it's important to distinguish a strategic question or a tactical question from doing political theory about and trying to answer political theory questions, because it, it is fair to say that like, it's not very effective to like moralize to people about their way of life. And to say that like, you like don't deserve like, uh, you know, there was all this fight about whether we should be calling all of these objects of consumption, like our treats, like the, Treats in the global north. We all need our we all like need our our treats. And the reason I'm, I'm on the fence about it a little thing bit. Is is I because I like treats though. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I like I like treats too. Um, but you know, there's I think there's <laughs> I think there's a kernel of like fairness in it, which is that like North Americans, like we are like babies. Like we can never be hot too hot, like we can never be like crammed on public transit for a bit. It's just anathema to our to our like e- our, our ethos. And so like if that if that's like the kernel of truth in it that I do think is like fair. I I do not think it's, like, a good idea to tell people that we have to have worse standards of living and we have to – like or, like, you know, I don't even like that language because it's not like all of this material – all of the, like, objects of consumption are contributors towards, like, higher standard of living. Uh, but in any case, do you, do you get the bit of the dilemma? It's like on the one hand, I, I there is a kind yes. of validity. On the other hand, I don't think it's, like – I don't think it's right to do that to say that to people, you know.
1: I think that like okay, so circling back to the foster, like,
2: yeah, sorry, we got a little bit, we we got a little bit off. No,
1: this is no, it's really good. No, I think that like the maybe the pitch for why this is a useful category here, this metabolic rift stuff. uh, Going back to your question, Will, it's really, really well put actually, and it's pretty illuminating, right? That you know we all take for granted that we know like the thing that we want to hold constant in the transition, Mm -hmm. and that's just not clear at all. Actually, not not obvious. I think that, like, the, the urgency of ecological crisis is such that, like, we can almost make, like, I don't know if this is good or not. I'm just going to say that I think part of the thing about this discourse is that, like, the urgency of crisis is that, like, it implores us maybe to bracket some of that debate for the moment. Because the problem is unsustainability ecologically, mm-hmm. and the contradictions are intensifying and multiplying, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, I read reports from scientists all the time that say shit like there's not going to be any more fish in the ocean by 2050. And it's like, okay, I don't know if I'm, <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know exactly if we agree that the, that, the, that the goal is freedom or whether or not we should have X or Y, mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, possible like form of consumption or lifestyle. Uh,
2: this. So you're telling me either way, I won't be getting Scottish sa- smoked salmon.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, by the way, go get your locks now because it's not clear you're going to have them for very long. You know, this is – but this Stop is it. like a serious – this is the serious point yeah, yeah. is that like the metabolic rift category helps us identify the connection between capitalist production and the basic – fundamental unsustainability that seems to characterize our relationship with nature today and under condition, current conditions. And if we don't solve, I think that the the sort of rhetorical move, and again, I don't know if this is good or not, Like, but I think the rhetorical move is like, it doesn't matter what you think the, uh, the ethical principle of a better form of life should be uh, if it's not possible for human society to exist in 50 years. And I think that that's the sort of like you know, the sort of urgency, I know that sort of sounds like like moral blackmail or something when I put it like that. But I think that there's like real reasons to take seriously that this is, in fact, the, the level of the existential crisis that climate change and yeah, the ecological crisis constitutes. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. The thing that I find bracing in this series that we're doing in what is eco-socialism is, you know, Sometimes I fucking hate talking to you. I hate I when you bring up these scientific reports that you bring up because I'm like, I, I I can't I can't fit all of that in into my paradigm of how I'm trying to analyze these issues. <laughs> but yeah. it's so just... the one
2: that killed me was the microplastics falling from the rain into all of our food. So there's like no way. Yeah, there's no way. To, Jesus yeah.
0: fucking Christ. Um, is that. Delicious. What's hard with this, and you know, I'm, you know, I feel like you know this is kind of full circle. I can actually, I can see why we would want to defend a qualified Prometheanism because what's so bracing about this political moment is the feeling that so much of these vectors of time are not under our control, mm-hmm. and that time isn't on our side. And that the way that I think about it is, you know, you know, I sometimes do think that these debates about what actually is our norm division, just having it out, and we can also have debates about tactics, but you know, have some. Sort of separation on what it is we think we're talking about there, but it is also the case that these things aren't waiting for us to figure it no. out, and mm-hmm. you know that that's just a, you know the tragic condition of human action. But I can understand the Prometheanism is you know, to, you know, to have a form of social life where time isn't constantly against us in this way, constantly outside of our control. And you're know, realizing that if we don't do it, time will do us. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's hard. And I don't, I don't have easy answers.
1: No, no easy answers. And this, by the way, too, and we're going to get, like I said, we're going to get to this later in the series. I've got a whole thing mapped out for us. Um, th- this is going to be too long and we're going to have a lot of annoying, upsetting conversations. And I'm re- really sorry already. <laughs> but this is like basically what you just said, Will, is like part of the lore of eco-fascism, right? Like the eco-fascist... You say lore like, or Wait a second. <laughs> <You say> lore <laughs> are or Are you lore? saying
0: I'm becoming an eco-fascist? <laughs> no, no.
1: I'm saying that it is part of the attraction of an eco-fascist approach that like time's not on our side. Like, you know, we'll, so you get like the, the hori- like one of the things that's looming on the horizon is like, yeah, what happens when these crises continue? Well, one thing you can do is, you know, use the militaristic powers of the state to like shore up the defenses for this community here now at the expense of everyone else, and to do it undemocratically. And like, I think that like one real way of articulating what's at stake in in this conversation, these conversations, hopefully about eco-socialism, is it's like socialism or barbarism. It's still the, it's still the that's still the case. And like the ecological crisis kind of like turns up the heat on that in a really kind of urgent way. Mm-hmm. I'm um, Obviously not for eco-fascism, but it's concerning that, like, these sorts of ideas gain traction in response to the way that the problems are continuing to, to intensify. Who
3: said eco-fascist?
1: Who? I don't know. Most people don't, like, identify as it, but, like, you could see, for instance, like... There's like eco-fascist regimes in in Latin America. You know, you could see Bolsonaro
0: is doing some of this stuff, for instance. Like I
1: said, we're going to get there. There's a whole book
0: on it. People who worry about the population is growing yeah. um, too much. And so we're going to have to, they was couching things like we're going to have to make hard choices. Yeah, yeah. yeah they usually don't spell out what those hard choices mean vis-a-vis the problem of population growth. Yeah. Right. And there's usually a particular type of population that they think is growing too fast. It's not surprising that they often start turning their gaze to the continent of Africa. Yeah. strange, huh?
2: Or just like suggesting maybe it's not such a bad thing if like Bangladesh just falls into the ocean. Yeah. Jesus. Well, that is what's happening. (laughs) Yeah. Well, <laughs> this was a this was a fucking downer. I'm sorry, everybody.
3: <laughs>
2: I, I thought oh we were just going to be like ranting against leaf blowers or some shit, but man, it
1: yeah. <laughs> we, oh, we, skipped we
2: skipped the leaf blowers. We got right into it. Shit. You know this All
1: right. Well, like I said, uh, we'll be we'll be back. Uh, but that, <laughs> if you want us, Jesus. <laughs> that does it for us today. New episodes of What's Up to Velocity come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. Also, check us out on YouTube for videos and live streams. Before we're closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you, and we're really grateful. Today's new patrons are Dart McVeigh, Kate Petroff, Fionn Jen, Petting Pigs, Simon, Galen, Benjamin Platt, David Tarbell, Annalise Paulson, Chris Marr, Saya Clark, Glenn Holland Lean. Corinne Hummel, Xavier Hankin, Jaitan Book, David Ruderman, Mr. Paul Meyer, Nicholas Robinson, and Maria Tilegard. Thank you all very much. If you, too, like what we're doing and want to support the show, please go to our website, left2philosophy.com and click the support button. Patrons get access to exclusive content like locked episodes, bonus videos, and access to our Discord server. You can also buy some What's Up to Philosophy merch from the store linked on our website. Follow us on Twitter at Left to Fill, and don't forget to leave us good reviews and comments on your podcast app. With that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.
2: Bye. Take it easy.